Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a push to get students back into the classroom and big changes to how they'll learn about history sparks a lot of debate. All that and more coming up. Thanks for joining us on Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. It's been close to a year since our society first began feeling the impact of COVID-19. And this week, the pandemic's impact on our children is fully in the spotlight. Today, I'm joined by our state education leaders to strongly urge that all schools provide in-person learning. Governor Roy Cooper and the state's new top educator are coming together with a single message. Our students cannot lose any more time. Cooper is a Democrat while Catherine Truitt, the head of the Department of Instruction, is a Republican. But both agree that students need in-person learning for reasons that go beyond the classroom. We also know that remote learning and this pandemic have taken a tremendous toll on thousands and thousands of families, disrupting jobs, childcare, healthcare, social networks, and even food security. School is where students learn social skills, get reliable meals, and find their voices. Meanwhile, the State Board of Education is making changes to the way that students learn about history. New standards for social studies will put more attention on concepts like racism, discrimination, and identity. But some GOP lawmakers are pushing back, saying the move could prompt division and potentially teach students an anti-American viewpoint. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Joshua Senegal. Among those against the change is Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who's here with us right now. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much for joining Black Issues Forum. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, one of the intentions of redesigning, rewriting the social studies standards was to be more inclusive of the diverse voices and perspectives of the student body and also the American public. Do you agree with the intention behind changing the standards? Um, well, actually, that's one of the things that, that, that worries me most about the standards. Uh, you know, we need, we need to make something clear here. There's something that's been misrepresented by all of the, the, the GOP members of the state board, so to speak, and that is that we want to hide things that have happened in history. Nothing is further from the truth. As a student of history, I know that it is absolutely, it is essential. Uh, it is a requirement, actually, for us to teach our students about all the terrible things that have happened in this country. Slavery, Jim Crow, uh, the lack of uh, equal access for women. We have to teach how and why those things happen. But I think also what we need to teach is this. Our system of government, the American system of government, is what made it possible for us to overcome those things. And in these standards, I don't see that uh, being made plain. I see the tone as being very negative and very divisive. And uh, quite frankly, uh, points to all the bad that's in America, not the good. Can you provide any specific examples? Like, where does it end with the intention, which is a good thing, but it begins to sort of veer off into that political territory? I think when you look at some of the things that are said, some of the language that's used, uh, when they talk about systemic racism, uh, the, uh, they make mention at some points about the American system of government uh, being systemically discriminatory. Uh, those are the types of things that I think we need to stay away from. Uh, because, as I said, there have been times when there has been institutional racism in places across this nation. But by and large, the way we destroyed those things was with our exceptional American government, our founding documents, the words thereof, our Constitution, and our courts of law. And that is why I'm diametrically opposed to these standards. I think that we should point 
point that out uh, as well as point out the bad because without one without the, the other doesn't work. Well, words like systemic have been removed from this last iteration that was approved on Thursday night. <coughs> um, so at this point, you have said that you're going to continue the fight on behalf of uh, whom, is what I would ask, because so many people uh, had input into the rewriting of these standards, mm -hmm. and even the public had feedback. Mm -hmm. So, so on, whose, on whose behalf are you fighting? Well, uh, here it is. Uh, I've heard the number thrown out that 7,000 people responded to these uh, standards. 85% of those people responded in the positive. Uh, we just ran a, a poll ourselves and a petition ourselves over four days. It got almost 30,000 signatures of people who are diametrically opposed to the tone and uh, the content of these standards. Uh, so we think that this issue is not a dead issue. It's issue continues to, we could need to continue to uh, discuss this issue and try to perfect these standards for the satisfaction of all North Carolinians and not just uh, one side. Well, let's move on to another big announcement this week, the reopening of schools. Um, who do you think is benefiting the most? Is this a win-win-win for everyone with regard to returning to in-person learning? I do. I've said it long ago. Our children need to be back in school. As a candidate for lieutenant governor traveling across the state, one of the number one questions I was asked is, how much influence will you have over opening the schools? When will our schools open back up? as Lieutenant Governor, is one of the questions I continue to get from citizens across this state. Our children need to be back in school. We have fought long and hard in this country to make public education a standard, and we have that. It is ingrained in our society, and without it, we see the dreadful effects of learning on our students. And unfortunately, those students that always end up getting the short end of the stick are getting even, uh, getting even farther behind. We need to get our, our teachers back in the classroom, our students back in the classroom, and we need to get back to the business of education in person. And you mentioned teachers. A lot of teachers, however, are uncomfortable with returning to the classroom, especially in, in locations where there is large student population. How are you going to support those teachers? Well, you know, one of the things we need to look at, really, is trying to work with every entity we can to get the vaccine out as quick as possible. Uh, it's an issue of supply and demand right now, and we're working hard to make sure that that happens. But I would say to those teachers, uh, please consider what's happening to our students. There are people all over this nation that are making sacrifices, essential workers that are making sacrifices every day. And I think that teachers should be part of that group. Uh, I know it's going to be tough, but I would encourage them to be strong and hold on. We're trying to do everything we can to try to make sure that all of our citizens who, citizens who want the vaccine can get it. And I think that if they come together as a collective, they can keep themselves safe in the classroom. I really have confidence that they can do that. Well, I think we all want the same things, and I really appreciate you being here with us, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Thank you for having me. As we mentioned at the top of our show, state leaders are urging public schools to once again offer in-person learning, but the governor stopped short of making it a requirement. Here to weigh in, we have James Ford, executive director of the Center for Racial Equal Equity in Education, Professor Umar Muhammad of St. Augustine's University, and Courtney Napier, a writer and journalist for publications like Indie Week and Scalawag. So glad to have all of you with us. So great to be here. Thank let, you. Let me just open up with you, James. Was the decision of the governor and of the state health direct, director made in the best interest of teachers, of students, of parents, of all concern? 
Um, I think the answer to that question depends on which constituency you belong to, right? So for, I think the intention was certainly to be in the best uh, benefit of students, the concern of them being out of class and uh, some of the social and emotional and educational impacts of that. Uh, however, right, I mean, if you are a teacher, um, I think the unanimous sort of uh, feeling is that it wasn't, you know, because, uh, you know, vaccination was not necessarily a part of that process. There's a lot of fear uh, of folks getting sick in my region, the Southwest. We've lost teachers from uh, COVID-19. And so, um, and then if you're Black, right, uh, there's, there's, there's different concerns about the virus, how it impacts us and, you know, what our rates of hospitalization are. But I think given the numbers they saw, uh, starting to lower in the hospitalizations, the intention was to give uh, students access to in-person learning. Uh, whether it satisfied everybody, I don't think that that's the case. Well, let me ask you, Umar, what do you think about the timing of the decision? Well, I, I would have uh, preferred the timing. Thank you for having me. I would have preferred the timing um, to be during the, uh, the holiday break so that, you know, there could be the necessary preparation. Uh, many of, like, the universities that are in the state, we, we prepped for having in-person uh, during the break. And so uh, the teachers, the professors, you know, we had enough time to prep ourselves, get tested, uh, do the things necessary that uh, would put us in the best possible situation to stay safe in the classroom. Speaking of timing with regard to the recent CDC report and also the passage of Senate Bill 37, which was an act to provide access to in-person learning, was there any politicking going on, you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, public schools plays such a major part in our in our lives, particularly African-American community and, and the numbers of population of students that are in public schools in North Carolina. It, it I mean, it... it, it I mean, it showed. I mean, the the CDC putting out uh, information about that, you know, saying that public schools were safe, uh, mostly um, to have in person. I think those two things coming together, the timing and the announcement. Uh, I don't uh, know another way you can see it besides politics. Well, Courtney, let me get your thoughts on this, particularly as it concerns teachers in classrooms and teachers not only in Wake County but but around our state. Yes, exactly. Um, what my two colleagues said is is absolutely true, and this is this is a scary time. Of course, we want our kids back in school. I want my kid back in school. She's in kindergarten, and I love that. But at the same time, there are counties around the state that don't have the same amount of money coming in, like a Mecklenburg or a Wake, and they're the ones that are going to have the hardest time transitioning and making sure that their school's safe. And there's no resources attached to this Senate bill, and that's going to be a major problem for a lot of these other counties. James, what kind of support do teachers need? What could be incorporated policy-wise to help them feel more comfortable and be safer? I think that uh, instantly moving them up in terms of their priority for vaccinations would have been a real big step. Um, you know, teachers want to get back into the classroom. They just want to be able to do so in a way that's safely. And so um, I know they're like the number three on the priority list um, right behind seniors. But had there had that sequence come after um, mandatory vaccinations, I feel like they would have felt more comfortable about the decision. 
I'd like to move us on to talking about this decision that was recently made just Thursday night. The State uh, Board of Education voted to approve a change in social studies standards. And there's been a lot of conflict over this, words like systemic racism. But as, as I've understood it, now the word systemic has been removed from the conversation. When J James, let me just continue with you. When you hear the word systemic, what does that imply? Or what does it really mean? I think it implies that the racism we're dealing with, particularly historically, has this been the most pernicious is that kind that lives in systems, right? And it's less about individual personalities and how they interact with one person or another. Um, you know, redlining was a policy, right? Uh, segregation was, was a policy and a, a legal disposition. And while I don't want somebody uh, calling me the N-word, uh, I think ultimately it's when systems treat us that way uh, that has the most historical significance. Let me ask you, Umar, when it comes to implementing these new standards, mm -hmm. what kinds of additional changes support for teachers mm -hmm. do you think is going to be needed? Well, that's going to be a tough one. I mean, uh, I, I, as I was researching this topic, it, it dawned on me that 80% of our teachers are white females, right? And so when you're talking about making these changes of racism, institution of these words, you really have to be able to support these teachers teaching um, this topic. And it may not be an easy um, conversation for them to have. And so that's going to be a tough, tough role for them to pull. Um, you know, most of our students, a lot of our students are minority uh, majority, and so having those conversations, we typically want to have someone that looks like them in the front of the class making, having those conversations with them. But I think it can be done. It's just going to take a large amount of support, and the teachers themselves are going to have to be open um, to learning new language, new ways of expressing uh, what is reality for a lot of their students. And Courtney, when it comes to expressing that reality and the reality that the majority, as Umar said, of teachers in these classrooms are white women, what kind of intentional effort needs to be made so that they feel comfortable teaching this material and so that the children who are in the classroom are made to feel comfortable, whether they're white or black or, or brown or otherwise? Um, yeah, that is such a great question. And I feel like as far as the teachers, they need to put themselves in the, in the shoes of the students. Um, as my colleague said, we have a minority majority in our schools. And I recently wrote a piece to, um, covering the work of the Wake County um, Black Student Coalition. And one of their demands is that they have comprehensive black and indigenous history as a part of their curriculum. It is proven that black and brown students do better when they see themselves represented in the curriculums that they're being taught. And so I think we have to put our comfort aside a little bit and think about the generation that we're lifting up and making sure that they feel engaged and seen and empowered with the um, curriculums that they're being taught. Absolutely. And in another area, we're also talking about one of the one of the things that may have made it easy for us to go back to school um, and is also creating some consternation, and that is vaccination hesitation. <laughs> we, I, I love that we have a term for all of these things, <laughs> but, but even with all of the information and education out there um, and trusted leaders getting these vaccines, I'm going to open up with you, Umar. Mm. Do you understand vaccine hesitation? I do. Um, 
I have to be honest, I do. I don't know if the leaders that are being um, put in front of us taking the vaccines actually have the trust of the people. Um, so it's going to be tough. I, I don't know if people, I think there's a general distrust of government. Um, and so, you know, having government push something that, you know, they don't know all the answers to which is a challenge, right? You know, I was listening to, you know, pregnancies. Should we take the vaccine if we're pregnant? You know, um, so those are studies that weren't necessarily a part of the first clinical trials. And so, you know, people just don't know. And I, and I understand that. Um, that's a major decision to have something, um, you know, have a vaccine or take a vaccine. You know, I've had family members that take it and I have others who say they're not gonna take it. So. Uh, I think it's a personal choice. I think we should leave it as a as an individual and personal choice. But I think people should definitely take precautions, do the three W's. Um, but but vaccinations is is, an, is another level. And so we have to look at it as you know, don't bully us to 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 just accepting it without our own consciousness of approving it. But all, but allow us to do our own research, uh, listen to those that we really trust. But do we have time for that? Do we, do, yeah. James, do we have time to do our own research right now? What's the greater risk, COVID-19 or the vaccination? Yeah, I'm not prepared to answer that question. That's like the tree, <laughs> tree in the woods uh, situation. But um, what I would say is that, um, you know, it's a great question because black people in particular, again, and this is where history is important. We're not most of us unreasonable conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. And our apprehension comes from a historical narrative that's often not taught. Um, when you read books like Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, you know there's a litany of moments where medicine is used to either experiment on us or to do us harm. And so that distrust has been well earned. The question you're asking is what's the, I mean, either you're gonna get it, we're disproportionately harmed by the virus, right? And hospitalize and die at a higher rate or you know, we also are on the receiving end sometimes of some conspiracies, right? Legitimate conspiracies. So which one is which? I don't know. That's a risk assessment every person has to make. Um, and, you know, much like Brother Umar, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, I, I, you know, I don't have, I haven't arrived at a conclusion yet for myself. So um, it's, it's tough. It's a tough decision. And Courtney, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the role of media in all this, and particularly um, African-Americans who are purveyors of information. Yeah, absolutely. We have a role. We have, um, as the media, as journalists, as anchors and reporters, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're uplifting verifiable information and also that we are uplifting these concerns in a way that's responsible and respectful and empathetic. But what we cannot do is uplift misinformation and conspiracy theories for clickbait and, and views. And so we really have to be careful what voices we're uplifting. And also, I believe we need to be focusing on black-led organizations that are doing some really, really great work, like NC Black Alliance, um, lifting up several churches from across the state that are places where people can va get vaccinations, places where people already feel safe. We already feel safe in our black churches. And that needs to be reported in North Carolina's mainstream media so that they know that this is, a, this is a good thing to do. It's an important thing to do. It is a personal choice, but it's also about public health and collective care. Big decisions to be made with regard to whether to vaccinate, but definitely, as you said, Umar, wash, mask, distance, do all of those things to be safe in the meantime. And 
a big part of any conversation involving COVID is the money. Mm -hmm. And right now, lawmakers are negotiating over a nearly $2 trillion proposal from President Biden. He says he's willing to work across the aisle, but some aspects are non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. Let me open up with you, James, with this... Uh, with what's non-negotiable, what, what can we not give on, especially when we take into consideration the priorities of the African-American community and the priorities of African-Americans who helped put Biden into office? So I'm going to say anything that disproportionately benefits uh, those communities, that's what we can't afford to give on. And from a personal politics standpoint, um, if I'm Biden, I have a mandate. So I'm not as interested or prioritizing bipartisanship uh, not particularly in this environment where uh, everything is characterized by extremes. I think you have to do whatever you can uh, to make sure that we get relief and help, not stimulus, but survival <laughs> mechanisms to the folks to be able to take care of their, their, their physical and, and, and financial health. Um, and whoever wants to get on board with doing what's right by the American people, you remain open to working, to them, working with them, but uh, you have a mandate to serve the black and brown uh, multiracial constituency that got you into office, and anything beyond that is uh, is not up for negotiation as far as I'm concerned. Courtney, James mentioned the current social environment as kind of creating a different situation for uh, making these decisions and setting priorities. Where do you see um, the is is more important right now? The bipartisanship and unifying or getting through an adequate uh, package to um, help the American people? Maybe they're one and the same. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, the theme for today is history. And, and the GOP has a record. They've already been able to pass two stimulus packages, and they were very clear who they were passing those to um, help and prioritize. And those were large corporations and the ones that are filling the fundraising coffers for the party. And so this is the Democrats' time to really step up and to do what's best for the people, do what we have always expected them to do when they won the majority in Congress, which is prioritize working families and struggling families. Umar, what do you think the wins and losses are for Democrats, for Republicans, if, uh, if we have to resort, if the, um, if the Congress, rather, has to resort to using reconciliation to get the, the multi-trillion dollar package passed? What gets compromised? Well, um, I, I think any, any amount of uh, uh, bipartisan, bipartisanship that lingered at all, I think it may, we, we, we would probably lose it. Um, however, I think that at this time and stage that we're in, I, I don't think it's time to dilly and dally. I think we need to make an effort to get done what needs to be done. I actually believe the package is not big enough. I actually believe it shouldn't be a stimulus. It should be a reconstruction package. Mm. Our communities need our schools rebuilt. This should have been a time that we could repurpose our schools. We have so much, we put so much into our school systems. Um, in our communities, we strain them, we drain them. I think it should have been bigger. It should have been, a, like I say, a reconstruction package. And so I don't think we should, bipartisanship right now, as they say, <laughs> I think it's a song that says it's dead, right? Um, and, and I think it can be revived, but I don't think this is a time to really focus on bipartisanship. It's a time to get some things done, help the people, 
even if it's a short-term, quote-unquote, stimulus, we need to put some things in, in our communities uh, so that they can begin to start uh, revitalizing themselves. James, let me ask you, based on what you've heard of the Republican package, how does that meet the moment? It doesn't. <laughs> I mean, I'm, in short, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, it, again, it prioritizes this notion of fiscal conservatism, which is fine if that's your political outlook, right? But we are in, it's, a, it's an understatement to say we are in a state of emergency. I mean, we really are. And, and to the point made earlier by my colleague, um, when, there was, when they, they had control, they were clear on what they wanted to prioritize, right? There was no concern about deficit. There was no concern uh, uh, about serving one particular constituency who disproportionately benefits. And so we're making a calculation, right? Budgets are more documents. And so when you are overly concerned with creating something that's a fraction of a package that, to Umar's point, was not, is not big enough, um, that tells me, that telegraphs to me what your values are. And so it's, it's not adequate. And I think that the average American uh, would tell you that right now. Well, let's hope a decision is made to benefit most Americans who are, are out there suffering right now. Appreciate all of you being Thank with you. us today. Thank you. Thank you. As we celebrate Black History Month, be sure to check out some of the programming available on PBS NC. An upcoming special, executive produced by Dr. Henry Louis Gates, explores the 400-year story of the black church in America. The series traces the church's history from the transatlantic slave trade through the civil rights movement to now. The Black Church airs February 16th and 17th, right here on PBS NC. And I'd like to once again thank Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, James Ford, Umar Muhammad, and Courtney Napier for all being here today. If you want to reach us on Twitter or Instagram, just use the hashtag NCBlackIssues, and you can find all of our other episodes on pbsnc.org slash blackissuesforum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thank you for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.